Okay. All right, good evening to Elephant in the Room number, what number is this? Do we do? Well, technically this is So this is part one slash six, if you count last year. Um, this is going to be the creation evolution debate, and there will probably be a death match right here, so we're in that spill zone. Now, actually what's happening is, is we're going to be discussing this, you know, just as the body of Christ, trying to answer some of these questions and probably ask more questions than we answer, to be perfectly honest with you. We're going to have some time where the speakers can present their position, they can have a little bit of rebuttal time, and then we're going to open the floor up to you guys to ask questions so they can clarify, talk about whatever it is that maybe you missed or you want to inquire further about. Uh, let me emphasize first and foremost that these two people do not necessarily agree with the position they were asked to defend. Okay, You actually don't know what they believe. And that's okay, because the idea is we want to have a healthy discussion realizing that as the body of Christ we have had a wide variety of views, and we're trying to discern what is true, what is not true, and really leave it open to you guys to you know, go home and really think about this, talk to your family about it, talk to your friends about it. So this is trying to be a healthy discussion, no, no fights, all right, Jake? <laughs> All right, let me, let me talk through this first sheet. Um, it says, it's time to talk. These sessions are not debates, arguments, or authoritative answers. They are respectful and responsible and biblical presentations of the issues, followed by questions and discussion among friends. Welcome, let's talk. The format's going to be prayer, introduction um, of the topic, speakers, and formats, and then we're going to have the 10 to 15 minute presentations, the rebuttals, and then the questions, etc. Principles, number one. We are considering these issues from a biblical Christian perspective. This means that personal experience, opinions, and politics are not directly related to our concerns. Specifically, science is not directly related to our, our concerns today. We are not scientists, and we're not asking these questions as scientists. Specifically, these questions are biblically. Is this something we can believe in or not? Number two, we believe that the people who love Jesus deeply can have extremely opposite beliefs on, a very, or on very important issues. This is called pervasive interpretive pluralism, the historical fact that very faithful Christians have come to completely different conclusions on certain issues with the same exact scriptures in front of them. Number three, therefore we believe that apart from a few key historical theological truths a person's Christian confession and identity should not be questioned because of an opinion on issues such as these number four we also believe that despite a lack of agreement there is a right and wrong stance on these issues and it is the duty of the faithful church to seek it out in his word and finally number five this seeking out of the truth including our time together must consist of gentle and respectful language and prayerful listening alright so with that, let's open with prayer. Lord God, we thank you that we can come before you and we can ask these difficult questions. We can try and seek your will. And uh, we just thank you that we can do so in an environment that is not hostile, that is not judgmental. Instead, we can ask honest answers, or ask honest questions and seek honest answers. Thank you for Christ and the love that you have given us through him. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, real quickly on this page, we're going to look at the, the three positions here. We're actually only going to be defending two of them, and I'll explain why in a second. Um, the first position that we're going to look at, and this is going to be Mike, he's going to present the 24-hour view. Sometimes it's called the fiat creationist perspective. Um, in other words, the days of creation are 24-hour days of one normal week, approximately 6,000 to 10,000 years ago. This view is often associated with, quote-unquote, young earth creationism. 
Okay, and so you can see kind of the 24-hour view position as Mike has laid it out here and some resources that you can go to for further study. Um, number two, the day-age theory is the exact same as the first position except for you take the word day or yom in Hebrew and you would actually interpret it as a long period of time. You use more of a metaphorical understanding. So those are essentially the same except for you just have a difference in how long each day is. So it's a metaphorical day, but it's still structured in the same sort of pattern. And then finally, number three, and this is the position that Michelle will be presenting, and that's the framework view. It says that the days exhibit a logical rather than chronological order and thus serve literary and theological purposes more than scientific and historical ones. This view is often associated with the cosmic temple view and theistic evolution. You see the framework view down here at the bottom. This is what Michelle will be defending. Essentially, the reason, what, what she's going to be saying is it's not answering the question of evolution, creation, day, age, etc. You can be a theistic evolutionist. You can be a long-day theorist and have no problem with the scriptures. It, it's not really answering those questions. The reason we're not doing number two is, again, because it follows a lot of the framework that Mike is, is going along. And as you can see in Mike's reading as well from James Barr and so forth, the question of the word yom in scripture, you don't really get a long period of time in the Genesis text. It actually includes numerical data along with it, which means that you don't have a precedent for assuming it's a long period of time. That's why we've actually ignored position two and kind of bundled up with Mike's. Does everybody understand why we're doing that? Okay, so if I've confused you enough, then we are going to begin, and Mike is going to present the young earth creationist perspective. Okay, let's start. Um, first, we'll say, obviously, the, the uh, topic tonight, creation and evolution, those kind of things, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, is an important topic. Uh, it has a lot to, uh, to say about all kinds of different issues, epistemology, how we know things, um, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of creation, obviously. Uh, how faith and science relate to each other, how they should relate to each other, and even, as we'll see, things about sin, things about death, um, other uh, big theological issues. I thought we would actually read Genesis as we were getting started. Um, it might be worth our time. There's kind of one main text here for us. So Genesis 1, uh, and we'll read to chapter 2, verse 3. You can read along with us, or you can listen, it's fine. Uh, I'm in the ESV, the English Standard Version. We'll pick it up in Genesis 1.1. I'd like to iterate as we read that this text is obviously agreeing exactly with my position. So just remember that. <laughs> this is my first piece of evidence. Genesis 1. We'll uh, start in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was one evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place. And let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind, on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. 
And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God saw, or said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creeping things, beasts of the earth according to their kind. And it was so, and God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God had rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Okay, that is the creation account. My first kind of point here is that a straightforward, what we might call a common sense, um, usually you hear the word literal, I don't know if it's the best word to use, but a very straightforward reading of this suggests that this is a a picture of God creating the material world in 24-hour days, okay? Um, The first point here is that this is a historical presentation from the author of uh, Genesis. So oftentimes Genesis 1 through 11 is split apart from Genesis 12 through 50, and when the rise of evolution uh, hit and, and scientists started thinking about the origin of the world in different ways than they had for a long time, um, the first move for Christians to try to, to, to protect themselves was to say that Genesis is, a, uh, particularly 1 through 11, is a different kind of text. It, this is a poetic kind of text. This is not um, telling kind of history, and it's not talking about the physical world the way that other texts are. So in Genesis 12, when we read about Abraham, Christians agree this is an actual human being. And when it says Abraham went somewhere, they think he actually went there on earth. This is not getting across some like weird theological point. Okay, This is not a literary, poetic, artistic, theological thing. It's a historical kind of narrative. Well, when you look at the text, when you read it, that's what Genesis 1 is as well. Okay, Even to the kind of verbs uh, it uses in the Hebrew. Um, the markers, exegetically, grammatically, syntactically, um, this is historical. The author or authors of Genesis meant for us to think this happened in the world in 24-hour periods, six days of creation and the seventh day of rest. The word here for day uh, that you see over and over again is the Hebrew yom. Everyone say yom. 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 Okay, now yom has many meanings, okay? In fact, even in Genesis 1, there are different meanings to yom. 
Yom can just mean a 12-hour period. Okay, you see that here um, at the very beginning of Genesis. Yom can mean a 24-hour period. Um, so the light period, 12 hours, and the night period, 12 hours. Uh, yom can also at times mean a general kind of age, a longer period of time, unspecified, ambiguous kind of time. In Genesis 1, though, uh, you see yom used very specifically um, and repeatedly with uh, different uh, grammatical, exegetical kind of language, linguistical markers. Um, so you see this again, evening and morning, right? These two 12-hour periods, evening and morning, equals this day, 24 hours. Also, uh, anytime you see yom ever, okay, in, the, in the, the evidence used with numbers, first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, these are 24-hour days, okay? Um, so there have been attempts to try to get out of this in Genesis, um, but I think they're failed attempts. Genesis, at least the author would think and have us think, have his readers think, that God has created these things and done these things in a 24-hour period, um, day by day, over the course of a normal kind of human, human week. Um, now, the uh, text of Genesis as well, so Michelle will uh, bring up perhaps the view that this is not a scientific okay, text, and this is not maybe necessarily a material text, talking about physical things, or at least that's not its focus. I would have you, though, again, look at a common, common sense kind of reading of this. Um, I mean, even the way it talks about vegetation, okay, and seeds and kinds, I mean, it, it actually does, in a sense, sound like a very prehistoric kind of scientific text um, with how things work and the way they were set up to work, the way they were run, those kind of things. Obviously, Genesis is not going to talk about the, the world the way that we do in the 21st century, right? It's very um, historic, ancient kind of people groups. But the way they're talking about these kind of things um, would make sense with the author trying to communicate. Again, this is just the material creation of the world in one week, 24-hour periods. Um, when we read the Bible, this is what we're trying to do. We're trying to understand what the author meant. Okay, That's kind of a fundamental principle of reading the Bible. Um, again, I think it's a hard argument to say the author meant anything other than this. Now, you can disagree with the author. We can say that's just not how it happened. right? But for most Christians, that's not an option. right? You have to kind of take this text seriously. And I think a serious taking of this text is that, like it or not, 24-hour days, six-day process of creation... Um, and then the dating, where we get 6,000, 2,000 years old, is from a genealogy of uh, Genesis with the people groups. So it's actually an archbishop, Usher, who made that date. Uh, most Christians run with about 6,000, 10,000 years old. I'm not as committed to the dating there. Uh, I think Genesis 1-1 uh, is the original kind of creation. Okay, God created the heavens and the earth. Then you get started in, in Genesis 3, um, this kind of sense of organizing of creation. Uh, I don't actually think that Genesis speaks to the age of the earth or the age of the universe um, as much as the argument is about the days. It's 25-hour days. So the, the earth or the universe could have been existed, could have been around for 14 billion years. Who knows how this works, right? But at some point in history, at some point in creation, God steps in and over 24 hours does day one. And then over the next 24 hours does day two. And then by seven days later, right, it's over. Does that make sense? He steps in and he does this. Okay. Um, now the early Hebrews read Genesis in this way. Again, you have the Ten Commandments. Uh, I'll read from Exodus chapter 20. The fourth commandment about the Sabbath assumes that this is a regular working week. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor, do all your work. For on the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. Four, why is this built into how humans are supposed to live? In six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, all that's in them, and rest on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. 
Um, so even kind of the Sabbath command is built on this common sense understanding. Um, the creation week is like our working week. Uh, we work on the seventh day, God worked on the seventh day. We don't rest every six million days, right, or every 6,000 days uh, as if day meant this kind of long time period, or we kind of ambiguously interpret this. It's just a week. It's a straightforward, plain week. Now, the overwhelming majority of Christians have read the Genesis account this way. Um, I mean, there really has been very little debate over this throughout the history of Christian interpretation. There are a couple people who have flirted with other uh, ways of interpreting creation. And this is actually, I think, an important point to realize that Christians didn't interpret uh, the creation story as a young earth, six-day, regular week uh, account because of ignorance. It's not like they knew there were, they didn't know there were other ways of interpreting it, or they didn't know that there might be scientific advances or scientific leanings that would make one want to interpret it in different ways, or even philosophical reasons. Um, So you have Augustine, who kind of uh, he actually writes a book called On the Literal Interpretation of Genesis 1, um, but he's commonly... Uh, look back at history and see, see Christians can do other things. Well, one or two Christians thought about doing other things. Um, and that actually, I think, reinforced the point that overwhelmingly the entire Christian tradition has said this is a regular week and this represents kind of what we call my, a young earth, uh, plain, plain, straightforward type of account of creation. Um, I think that's a more important argument than sometimes we realize the fact that we are walking away from a long period of interpretation. Um, I think it's arrogant of us to think that we might understand what the text means better than some of these people. Um, They've been doing it for a long time, particularly at the beginning. They're closer to the text, they're closer to these people, they're closer to the original languages, those kind of things. You have to ask yourself, why, out of the blue, do people start thinking of other interpretations? The question, of course, is modern science. Okay, Um, Darwinian evolutionism, things like that comes about, Christians get embarrassed, okay, uh, they want to avoid certain things, they want to avoid kind of losing some battles, and so they start going back to the drawing board. And um, I don't know if you realize this, the Bible's a pretty flexible flexible book, right? I mean, you can do a lot with the Bible, you can make it support a whole lot of things, and it has been, uh, it has been used to support a lot of things, it probably will be in the future as well. Um, it's really not that hard, particularly in the world of academia, with really creative minds, with lots of evidence out there, lots of things you can do, it's not hard to come up with all kinds of different angles to do so. But you've always got to kind of trace the money, okay? Um, Like politically, that's why I say, watch where the money's coming from to find out why people might be saying something or supporting something. Um, What is the actual motive for walking away from such a long textual history uh, of understanding creation this way? The motive is science. And is that necessarily a great motive for us uh, to uh, be able to start changing certain traditions. Um, I saw a quote while I was researching for this that said, if, you, if Christians marry the spirit of the age, they'll be a widower in the next one. Does that make sense? Um, it's, it's not the wisest thing for Christians to walk away quickly from interpretation just for kind of current modern reasons. Um, and I think that should be a big red flag, more of a red flag than I think it often is for people. I really think you've got to feel the weight of... 2,000 years of history behind you. Uh, and even if you choose to walk away from that, you at least need to acknowledge that. I mean, you need to really be like, okay, yeah, this is the big thing that we're doing by walking away from this. They weren't ignorant. We don't have kind of special new knowledge about the Bible. So with end time stuff, this is what I always tell my students as well. Um, this idea that the rapture, right, is the church being sucked away from the earth for seven years, it's a very early or a very recent interpretation, back to the 1800s. Um, and there are it's just not a very impressive thing. Uh, and, and it's a big red flag, right? I tell my students, when you see 1,800 years of interpretation and then something out of the blue come up, 
for a people group that's pretty far away from the text, pretty far away from that world, and then you can see very obvious wrong reasons to change the interpretation. You need to be very concerned about this, right? I worry that that's what's happening when we go back to the Genesis text and start reconstructing things. You hate to enact the slippery slope argument, okay? But if you take away the historical character of Genesis 1, there's actually a surprising amount of things that will be taken away as well, or at least can be. Um, so there's human's role in creation, um, the human and animal relationship, kingdom, very, uh, a lot of issues with gender and things might come up as well. Um, so I think allowing science to dictate interpretations is a dangerous game. Uh, I think it also ignores the fact that the scientific community is by nature a kind of a revolving door. Um, theories come, theories go, uh, paradigms shift dramatically. Um, and again, if you marry one of them, you're guaranteed to not be involved in the next one, right? And, and this is a dangerous game to play. There are even signs I'm told by scientists that Darwinian evolutionism is a shit that people are jumping off of, scientists. Um, that already you're seeing the paradigm start to crumble, right? Probably not to go back to a young earth creationism for Christians, but there are just there's always gaps in the science. I mean, this is how science works. There's always new things kind of going on. It's, it's important for Christians not to get sucked in by the latest fad um, and to go back to the drawing board in a significant way when perhaps they should... Uh, ride out the storm a little bit. Um, I think there are other scientific views that would explain some of the evidence that has led to Darwinian evolution. Christians can't lose their imagination because scientists say something. Does that make sense? Um, perhaps there are scientific explanations uh, for what the classic Darwinian evolutionist might bring up as evidence um, that corroborate, that fit in with young earth creationism. Um, I think there are some websites out here that would attempt to do that for you Answering Genesis, ITR, Creation Today. Um, I'm not a scientist. Uh, it's hard for me to walk through all that kind of evidence type stuff. But I do know there are, there are responsible answers for a lot of the, the scientific data that are out there that would support a young earth creation. Um, it's also important to note that we approach the issue of creation after two monumental historical events in, in the biblical text. One is the fall. So sin enters the world. One of the things sin affects is our mind, our intellect, the way we know things. Um, this is a significant thing, particularly when you're dealing with issues of natural revelation, general revelation, and then divine revelation. Um, you've got to, again, feel the weight of the fact that how we experience the world and how we know about the world is significantly altered because of the fall. Um, our capability to deduce things uh, is significantly altered, and, and we should be uh, humble when we try to take that and go... Uh, have that dictate how we interpret divine revelation uh, in the scriptures. Also, you've got the flood, um, which again, if you read the scriptures, um, again, this is something where people are going to debate on, but if you read the scriptures, a worldwide flood, okay, from Genesis 6, this is going to have serious effects on how you do science, particularly when you're thinking back to pre-flood things, right? And so um, when things like fossil records and, and certain things come into play, right? Um, this is a big issue. Do you accept a worldwide flood? If you do, the rules change, Right? I mean, the Darwinian evolution kind of paradigm is not built off of the biblical evidence to begin with. It's not built off of a kind of a biblical worldview, a biblical narrative that has a worldwide flood, which is going to throw off all the rules. To be honest, we're not going to know how to interpret the data if that exists, I mean, if that actually happened. Um, so there are big questions there that I think should make us at least severely humble when we approach the scientific uh, aspect of this in regards to changing interpretations because of the science. Um, I would say this as well as I wrap it up. Uh, when you read Genesis in a way that's not historical in nature, um, it's going to create significant theological dilemmas for you uh, that will pose severe problems. So the historicity of Adam and Eve. Uh, Paul, uh, one of the great kind of early theologians of the church, he gives us most of how we think about 
Christ and think about the atonement, seems to operate off an understanding that there was an actual person named Adam, an actual person named Eve, who were the first human beings. And their actions directly match Christ's actions. And what happened because of them are reversed and overtaken by what happened because of Christ. Um, so you might be losing a key kind of peg in just the understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done uh, when you take away that uh, kind of foundation. Also, death is a, a huge kind of historical and theological issue for Christians, okay? The biblical narrative say death entered into the world because of sin. If the world has existed for, if Earth has existed, if things have run, um, kind of evolutionary uh, way of looking at, at history for thousands, millions, billions of years, whatever it is, right? Things are dying, okay? Um, and things are dying well before humans come onto the scene. And things are dying well before a human being, maybe named Adam or maybe named Eve, would be able to stand because of a snake in a garden, uh, and then death enters into the world according to the Genesis text. This is a big problem for Christians. If death is not the result of sin, it affects how we view the entire biblical narrative, it affects how we view Christ's work, it affects how we view salvation, those kind of things. Um, and any other readings of Genesis have to take this into account to be able to, to account for these kind of severe theological dilemmas that you're going to run up against very quickly. Uh, again, I think the effects of going back to Genesis and messing with an interpretation that's been solid for thousands of years are much more far-reaching than we might anticipate at first when we try to become friends with the scientific kind of fad of the day. Um, so that's kind of the 24-hour view. Okay, The days are 24-hour periods. Um, you're looking at a, a more young Earth um, viewpoint here. Again, there is the day-age view. So you take the days, you make them longer periods of time, a, a million years, a thousand years, you can do whatever you want to. I don't think you have a whole lot of textual perspective to do that. Um, but the two views, my view and the, the day-age view, are similar in that they both read Genesis scientifically, historically. This is some sort of accurate account of history, um, whereas Michelle's view uh, rears off into heresy and thinking that uh, <laughs> this, this actually has no actual bearing on like a video camera of what happened in the world uh, at some point in the, the past. So that's my view, uh, and we'll now uh, turn the floor over. Well, with that introduction. Um, okay, guys, I have a few, I have a handout for you, and I will be making reference to it. It's got three different figures on it. Any one of them? Oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, I'm for you. Yeah, Mike, definitely use 20 minutes, so I get five extra minutes as well. Um, I was telling Mike that this um, this took me three weeks to teach uh, to my high schoolers, and I'm about to present it to you in 20 minutes. So, um, with that being said, this is very complicated and it's going to be foreign and strange, so just bear with me, and please let me know if you have any questions, and I will try and clear it up as best as I can. Um, so I have a few main points, and I'll just start with those before responding to some of Mike's comments here. Um, so the first <coughs> is that Genesis is an ancient text with ancient scientific assumptions, not modern ones. So I do not say that this is not a scientific text but it is an ancient one. Um, so it is very tempting, as Mike said, to have the common sense view, right? So we open up the scripture, and it's pre-bound for us, nice and easy, and it's in English. Hooray, okay. So it's very <laughs> tempting for us to view the Bible as something that we can get, that we can read and we can understand. You can go to any store, buy a variety of translations uh, that you did not have to translate. You did not have to do any of the translated work. Um, so, 
the problem with that um, is that we forget that this was an ancient text and it was not written to us it was written to Israel which is why it's in Hebrew and Aramaic the Old Testament and it was ultimately a revelation to a specific people in a specific time that then was preserved for us preserved by these people and now we are reading it so we are reading a mediated revelation something that is given through a people which means that we have to translate not only do we have to translate the Hebrew language which thankfully there are very smart people out there who can do that um, but we also anyone who has done language work will tell you that language cannot be separated from culture the language that you speak is closely identified with the culture that you've grown up in if somebody looked at a piece of paper uh, 2,000 years later and saw America with a apostrophe in front of it you're like why are they misspelling America I don't understand so you, when you are 2,000 years removed from a text some things that are not just language get lost in translation okay so it is the task of people who translate language to also try and translate culture however there's a problem with that um, most scholars recommend at least one that I'm uh, going to be referencing and presenting his view would say that translating the culture means you're trying to pull it out of its original context and you're trying to make it make sense to you but we need to actually reverse that process in order to understand an ancient text which the Bible is we have to actually enter into that culture he will advise his language students who are learning Hebrew when they're translating not to think of English words you have to literally enter into the culture so that you can understand it translating it is actually like a sort of imperialism so think of Britain at the height of its empire right they invade and they're, they're expanding their empire they go to Africa and they expect Africans to have their worldview they expect them to understand and to act the way that they act didn't go very well for them it was pushed back on them when we do the same thing when we say that it's common sense that is arrogant imperialism so when I so for example when I say the word marriage and y'all can what's the first thing y'all think about respond first word marriage man and wife okay keep going love, love. yes okay when we think of marriage we think of love maybe we think of Pinterest I don't know um, <laughs> right so when we think of marriage common sense we're thinking it's between a loving man and woman marriage today is usually out of love when we talk about marriage in the ancient Near East it was a political and an economic transaction the first word that would pop into their mind might be dowry okay so common sense translation is not the best approach in fact most heresies in the early church were adopting a literalist mentality literalism so reading the text is common sense Colossians 1:15. he was the firstborn so they thought oh Jesus was born there was a time when he was not that's reading it with common sense right reading it literally again I don't like 
literal as a term, but I like common sense, that's good. Uh, okay, so ultimately, uh, we have the fullest revelation of God, but it's again mediated. It is Jesus, the Word made flesh. Okay, but it is still a mediated revelation. And God is always going to come down to our level. He's never going to expect us to come up to his level. So he's not going to come to an ancient people and say, by the way, you guys are really wrong about the earth being flat and being held up by pillars. I hate to break it to you, but there's a thing called gravity, orbit. Don't want to make it complicated. Okay, you don't start off with a five-year-old with trigonometry. I'm not saying ancient people are dumb. That's definitely not what I'm saying. But his first interaction, his first encounter with his people, he's going to start with the basics. Doesn't mean it didn't happen historically or scientifically. But it's a revelation to a people who can't fathom the very being of God. Okay. Second main point. The ancient Near Eastern people were much more concerned with the function of an object and less concerned about the material in terms of what actually constitutes existence. So here's what I mean by that. Another uh, participation, if you will. So this chair... Y'all would say that it exists, right? Yes. Why? We can see it. Can be. We can see it. You could probably come up here and touch it, right? Mm-hmm. Right. We won't get too philosophical, okay? But you can see it, touch it, right, using your five senses. Because material, the fact that I can see it, touch it, I don't know that I want to taste it, um, means that it exists. Now, to an ancient person, they might say, if I had asked that question, because you can sit in it, because it holds you up, because of how you can use it. If this chair was broken, okay, this is horribly reducing it, but they might say it does not exist, or it is worthless. It no longer serves its purpose, whereas you and I would never say that, right? So an ancient person thinks differently about what makes something exist, which means that the big story about the origins of everything existing is more about purpose and function and not about the material origins. Okay? I know that was a big concept to go through. Um, Okay. So one of the ways that I can illustrate this point is going back to the Genesis narrative, actually. So if you'll open up your Bibles to Genesis 1. And if you'll refer to the chart that's got the circles on it, we'll go through and I'll show you um, what this might look like with God creating functions, creating a functional universe instead of material. Obviously, he's creating material, right? But that's not the big question for ancient people. They want to know, does it function? Okay, so Genesis 1, uh, verse 3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. He saw that it was good, separated the light from darkness, and he called the light day, and he called the darkness night. Why does he call the light day? He says, let there be light. And it just light? Why does he call it day? And why does he call darkness night? It's the function of time. 
This is the day period. This is the night period. Okay? So all the things that God creates are what mankind needs in order to survive, in order to live. Okay? So next, he talks about the waters. Okay? So in the pre-cosmic existence, so there is no creation out of nothing in the Genesis 1 story. From the very beginning, it says the Spirit was hovering over the darkness of the waters. Doesn't mean that God didn't create the world out of nothing, but that's not recorded here. So he separates the waters. Man obviously needs land. We're not eternal swimmers, right? We're not fish. So he lets dry land appear, and then what? It sprouts forth vegetation. Man needs food, right? And also, he makes the expanse. So he makes a way to control the weather. So in an agricultural society, if there's no rain, you're in trouble. You are dependent on weather. So when he separates the expanse, Okay, the firmament. Uh, if you look at the on the back sheet, I show a diagram of what an ancient Near Eastern person thought the world looked like. So you have the firmament. Okay, so they believe that there were waters above and waters below, because if you're an ancient person and you see that up in the sky water comes down, okay, then there's waters up in the air, right? But it doesn't come down all the time, so there needs to be something up there that holds it and then something that opens to let it come down. So they thought that there were doors up there. This would also be the resting place, a footstool for the gods, because they were up in the heavens. They needed something to set themselves on. Okay. Have you ever wondered why he separates an expanse and there's waters above and waters below? That's because he's revealing to an ancient people who thought there were waters above and waters below. Okay. So then you have vegetation, so he's creating time, weather, and agriculture. That's days one, two, and three. Then days four, five, and six, he fills those spaces that he's created, okay? So day four, let there be lights. So ever wonder also why he creates light on the first day and then waits all the way till day four to put actual lights in it? He creates light, but there's no sun, moon, stars. If we're reading this as a modern scientist, it breaks down. It doesn't make sense. Okay. And then, day five, he fills the waters above and the waters below with fish and birds. And then finally, day six, he fills the day three sphere, where he's created land. Now he fills it with man and animals. This is the format of the creation story. Um, okay. I think I've muddied the waters enough. Uh, let's see. How am I on time? You're at uh, 12.46. Oh, seriously? Okay. Um, okay, so hopefully that is illustrated that what the Genesis account is about is creating a functional world for people to live on. Okay. Uh, so that's my next point. Genesis 1 does not give an account of material origins, but the beginning of a world that can function. Um, and like I said, there was a pre-cosmic waters. The order doesn't make sense scientifically. If we're going to read a common sense view, it doesn't make sense. You don't create light, and then on day four, you create the sun, moon, and stars. 
Um, next point, the Bible has nothing to say about the age of the earth. So on that, I do agree with Mike. Um, or about the specific scientific process God may have used. But my conclusion is different. I think that therefore, it's possible to follow the scientific data, albeit with caution, okay, wherever it leads. We are not bound by the Genesis text to hold a young earth. It does not shake our foundations, because this isn't our foundation. God, who made the world, created an orderly world. He is our foundation. And whenever people start to get nervous, okay, if this is broken, right, one of my favorite theologians said, anything that you have to protect, you're sure to find, you're sure that that's an idol. Okay? This doesn't need our protection. God doesn't need our protection. The point of the text is that God created a good world. Okay? Um, so Genesis 1 does clearly give seven 24-hour periods. I don't contest that. Um, there's evening and there's morning. However, again, we can't look at that from a modern scientific perspective. What does seven, specifically the number seven, signify and symbolize to an ancient people? Any ancient Israelite reading this text would have immediately thought of a temple. This is about God making a temple. Specifically about him inaugurating his temple. Celebrating and celebrating the fact that he has a temple. Okay? A temple inauguration ceremony, seven days. And if you want to look up when the Israelites did that, it's 1 Kings <coughs> chapter 8, verse 62 through 66. They take seven days to celebrate once they have built the temple, once Solomon has built the temple. So when they see seven days, they automatically think. Remember, the common sense view to an ancient person? Temple. This is a temple text. God resting in every other ancient Near Eastern document. Okay, so not just scripture. The sign of a deity resting, that only took place in a temple. The deity only rests in a temple. Okay? Um, so, ultimately what this means... Okay, this does not take away anything vital from us. This, in fact, shows us that God is building a temple. That ultimately the truth about creation, the truth about the earth, is that it was a place created for God's presence. For God to be with man. That is the truth that we come away with in the Genesis story. Obviously, Genesis 3, that gets messed up. And then the entire rest of the story is God reclaiming his temple. Okay. Um, another piece that would um, bolster the idea of the temple creation argument, it goes back to your um, handout there. Most ancient temples, along with Israel's temple, they were formatted and built to look like a mini cosmos, a mini world, a microcosm. Okay. So most ancient people thought of the world in three parts. You have the outer world, then you had the visible heavens and the invisible heavens. You'll see uh, the similarity. I don't have much over my hand. Okay, so the bronze basin is filled with water. It's the cosmic waters. It's surrounded by bronze pillars. Inside you have the lamp, which by the way, if you read the really long, boring descriptions of how the tabernacle was built, um, the lamp is shaped like a tree. 
Most people think that's probably the tree of life. Okay, it's representative of the Garden of Eden. Then you have a veil, a thick veil separating between the Holy of Holies. That would be the firmament. And then you have where God dwells, where God rests. This is meant to be symbolic of the world itself. Uh, and just to quote, um, a quote here. So understanding the temple as a small model of the world is part of a larger perspective in which the temple pointed forward to a huge worldwide sanctuary in which God's presence would dwell in every part of the cosmos. So the temple eventually became a sign that pointed to the fact that God will one day have this whole world as his sanctuary. The glory will be filled with the um, the glory of the Lord will fill the whole world. Um, and then to address some of the things that Mike said, um, I would say... Do we need to do that right now or can we wait for the vote? All right, am I out of time? Okay, fine. <laughs> I'll give that a I, I think that's good. All right. Thank you very much, both of you, for going over time. And uh, <laughs> we are now going to return to Mike, and we are going to begin our rebuttal. So Mike has about five, ten minutes, which in Mike terms, five is yes, 20. Yes, stick to the time. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, Mike. <laughs> uh, well, thanks, Michelle. Good, informative. Part uh, of things I had not thought about or heard before. Um, I would want to first return to the fact that you're looking at an idea uh, this the cosmic temple view is more what you call what Michelle expressed. It's part of a, a view that's called the framework. We're talking about 40 years. This is how old this view is. Okay, 40 years old. Um, some of you are older than this view is. Uh, so, uh, I think 24-hour view people would ask this question: Why? Okay. So, what? Why are we coming up with this 40 years ago? Um, and the idea that this view is neutral towards science is just false. Right. Um, the idea is the Genesis text is not is not uh, tied to one scientific view or the other, right? But the whole point of this, the whole goal of this view, is to say, oh hey, we don't have to choose either way, so let's go with what everyone's saying, right? Um, again, watch the money, follow the money trail. Um, you take the Genesis text away from uh, any scientific viewpoint, so that you can go with the current consensus in the scientific community. Um, I don't think it's neutral uh, as sometimes it's made out to be. I would say, why, right? I mean, what exegetical concerns would lead someone to start messing with the interpretation again? If the, the question I'm going to ask Michelle, if, if, does she honestly think that if Darwinian evolutionism doesn't come about, do you think this happens? Do you think people looking at Genesis 1 start to come up with these kind of ideas of framework, of cosmic temple, of theological truths, not culture, those kind of things? Um, she mentioned one that gets brought up a lot, which is the sun on day four, right? How can there be light? There's one three. How can things exist? That kind of thing without the sun on day four. Um, again, actual ancient interpreters saw this problem. I mean, they talked about this continuously, and they came up with pretty common sense answers like God doesn't need solar light, right, to operate in certain accounts. There are these things called miracles. Um, there are all kinds of supernatural things, right, that can explain this kind of occurrence. Um, I would actually say this about the framework cosmic temple thing. I reject the conclusion that we are reading the text more influenced by science. Uh, I would say, uh, again, an interpretation that's only come about after scientific discoveries is reading it more influenced by science than we are. This interpretation was around much before these scientific discoveries were. Um, this interpretation is the interpretation of the early readers of the text. Uh, it seems to be the reading that's accepted throughout the rest of the canon in Exodus and on into the Pentateuch and Old Testament and the New Testament and then the early commentators. Um, 
I actually think if anything's outside of the scientific influence of today's theories, it's the, te- the interpretation that stretches all the way back to before the scientific interpretation. Does that make sense? Um, this has always existed. I mean, this has always been around. Uh, so I think it's unfair to say it's um, more influenced by modern scientific things because people were talking this way well before modern science was even around. Um, I would say, so you got history interpretation. I, then I want to go back to authorial intent, okay? What would the writer of this text and the original readers think about this? I'm not convinced that they wouldn't see this as in any sense regarding material ontology, which is the language, um, physical beingness, physical existence. Um, sure, functional ontology is big for the ancients, um, but the question would be, you don't want to make the text say more than it wants to say, right? But there's also the tendency to make it say less than it wants to say. I mean, I don't, can you really read Genesis 1 and think this has nothing to do with material things? God created the heavens and the earth, right? These vegetables, those kind of things. Um, the temple of you, I see it, okay? The fun, functional ontology, right? The triad of days, days 1 and 3, days 4 and 6, fitting it together. That's all there. I see it. It's great. That's all good exegesis. Um, I don't understand the, the kind of pick-and-choose figurative cultural mentality that goes into it. Um, unless you understand that you're trying to get out of a scientific embarrassment, right? Um, so we can pick this kind of one thing to say, this must be figurative, this must be cultural. Um, the theology, the point, the temple, all that stuff is carried by the actual historical nature of Genesis 1. If you take that away, again, it's this kind of slippery slope argument. You can take away everything. I mean, eventually you can go down the line. Um, in her rebuttal, I'd love to hear uh, uh, the concept of death addressed. Uh, what does this do to death? What does this do to um, the theological and my rights with death? Um, and then I would say this again, with this claim that this is only based on modern science and that kind of thing, these ancient interpreters saw this from day one as dealing with the material ontology. Um, these are the people who read the text, and they didn't come up with this kind of stuff. They didn't say, oh, you know, we're out of the, out of the, the radar here, we're off on something weird, because all the, the Jewish people were concerned about was function of things as if they didn't realize that things actually had to exist to function, right? Um, and that things were physical and they were made historically and those kind of things. Um, I think this is what an early Jew would have thought. Um, and I see no good reason, no good evidence to think that, that they didn't think that. Again, you can disagree with them, and this is where I struggle with the framework view. Um, it wants to say, sure, these people thought that, but let's pick the one thing that's going to embarrass us the most and say this is cultural or figurative, Right? Instead of saying, this is what the text says, we can stand with it or we can go against it. Um, you can say this is wrong, or you can say, this is the word of God. This is what it says, this is what they meant, this is what it means, and then we have a decision to make, which might go against the grain of modern science, um, or might not. It might well. Okay, short and sweet. Okay. <laughs> Just like me. I will address... <laughs> Sorry. Right. Okay. I will address what happened 40 years ago, Mike, and that was the discovery of ancient Near Eastern creation narratives. It was not a fear of science. It was the fear of our Genesis story is no longer unique. We found the Epic of Gilgamesh. We found the Babylonian creation narratives, and they were all really similar in saying a lot of different things. How similar? Similar. Hey, my rebuttal. Go ahead. Um, Okay. So, the fear, okay, I I give you the scientific fear, but what really caused the framework view to be set in motion was the discovery of other ancient Near Eastern texts, which actually gave us the opportunity to look at other ancient Near Eastern people and see what questions they were asking. We now had all of this documentation that forced us to rethink 
about how they viewed the world. It was very, very different from our view. So, yes, the Genesis story was similar. And then it had this idea of ultimately God creating and then resting in his temple. But it was also a subversive account. It was different from the other, from their neighbors. Okay, so the Epic of Gilgamesh um, was the story of this battle. So you had several gods who fought, okay, and then the resulting end of that battle was the creation of the world from a god's carcass, basically. Um, so what we learned about the ancient Near Eastern people is that they commonly viewed the sea as this evil being, as this force of uncontrollable nature, and so it became the symbol for evil. So when God separates the waters, and he does it by speaking, the Israelites are saying, he has control. Okay, So, it was not a fear of science. It was a discovery of these other ancient Near Eastern texts. That would be my addressing that one. Uh, okay, death. Here's what I would say to death. In Genesis 3, you have exile. You have sin. Now, what we have understood from a common sense plain reading of the Genesis story is that Adam and Eve had access to the tree of life. Not that they were immortal. So once they are exiled, the possibility of death becomes apparent. The dominion of death. Mm. It is not that death wasn't there, that cycle of life with animals, plants, and things like that were not there, but death now has dominion. Death is now coming for you. It has now become an evil thing. Mm. Uh, that's how I'd respond to the death. With authorial intent, I again, I think it's arrogant to say that we can read the text with our modern assumptions as a plain reading without understanding the other ancient Near Eastern documents. Um, and it is overwhelmingly, abundantly clear that they thought about functional ontology, that they thought in terms of temple, that the deity resting was not resting from, like, taking a nap, but it was beginning his creative duties. He is now finished the creative process, and he is now ruling it. That's what rest means. So I, I meant to do that with you guys. What does rest mean for y'all? It meant something different. We know that, not just because we're making it up out of our butts, but because we have thousands, okay, of documents in ancient texts, and these people have read them, spent their entire life studying them, and come to these conclusions. Obviously, we're not going to be 100%. We definitely need to have humility. Um, I think that's very true. And we should be cautious with science. We shouldn't just jump on the popular bandwagon. I don't know if evolution is the correct response, but I do see, still today, a general fear from the church that science is going to disprove our faith. Okay, That does not need to happen. So Thomas Aquinas, early church guy, he would say that when you've got science telling you one thing and theology telling you another, one of them is wrong because God ultimately created science. So it's going to jive with that. Um, and the mentality that I see, okay, the early church, sure, okay, they historically have always read it this way. Well, historically, they've also put a lot of people in jail and excommunicated and exiled people that tried to tell them science is pointing a different way. Maybe we should listen to this. Now they don't put us in jail, but they fire them from evangelical colleges. It happens all the time when somebody might mention 
All right, that evolution's a possibility. Okay, we're not gonna put you in prison anymore, but you get the X. So, um, also, with the whole miracles, I don't feel like that was sufficiently answered. My question, I would send the why back to you. Why go through the hoops when I think this is better explained by the temple view? Oh, also, Genesis 2 creation story. It's a, it's a separate, different creation story. If you read the Genesis 2 text, the order is different. When man is created, there's no plants. Whoops, Genesis 1. I was created on day 3. What do we do with that? Okay, that's Okay, thank you both. Hold on, whoa, 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 whoa. Technically, if we're going to follow the form that that's you true. gave now me. It's open. <laughs> I can fit it in an answer somewhere, don't worry. Good job, Michelle. Thank you. you thank you both. Like. You guys uh, did a great job. If you know, did take a little on the first one. Um, all right, what we're going to do now is we're going to open the floor up to questions. So if you have a question or comment or whatever else you'd like for a clarification, you'd like to see them go head-to-head again, um, raise your hand, and I will call upon you. Jake, you are first in line. Um, I'm curious to hear, uh, basically, the Genesis text is talking about a world before sin. And then once sin happens, there's a talk of exile into a world that exists outside of the world we just had described to us. Does that change how we should apply this Genesis text? Is it maybe speaking about the world that is to come, or the world that we can return to instead of the material world we dwell in? And does that alter anything at all about either possession? Who wants to take that one first? I think it's about directed to both of y'all. I'm not sure I understand the question exactly. So you're saying Garden of Eden is somehow separate from the rest of the world. Once they're exiled, that was gone, or...? I'm asking if that is a possibility through textual interpretation, and if that changes the, the debate, mm-hmm. the question. I think how I would respond is that um, the text clearly envisions human beings as gardeners. So, like, not literal, just all you do is garden, but you have been placed in this area and you're to tend to it. When they fail, when they fall, when they sin, they're no longer the Imago Dei and that they can't tend to it, or they don't do a very good job of it. Um, so I don't think I don't think that it changes necessarily my interpretation. I think people have done it. Uh, so I've got a book here, Evolution of Adam by Peter Enns, who's one of these guys who's under the, the ball in the evangelical world because he has these crazy ideas like the earth might not be thousand years old, that kind of stuff. And people get really upset at him for it. Uh, it's an interesting book. I think he might actually do that. I, I'm not 100% sure. But I think, I know there are people who do, so Adam and Eve were one of millions of people in existence. Right. And when God calls them uh, in a specific way, which is in Genesis 2, he's just calling a new community out of what's there around them. Like so you, you have a world outside of the Garden of Eden that they are then banished back to, those kind of things. Uh, I'm not sure it's a common sense reading of the text, but I would say people have done it. Yeah. Is that what you were getting at? No, may I rephrase? Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, can we not preserve what you're talking about uh, without challenging what she's talking about by assuming that the world described in Genesis chapter 1 is not the world we currently live in? I don't care if you call it a different dimension or heaven or the kingdom of God or however, whatever label you want to, want to do it, but could the exile from the garden 
be a talking about being removed from the perfect world that we are intended to re-inherit. And therefore, the new world, i.e. the one we're living in, could be created anyway. So then, all right, so then what you, let me, I'm trying to clarify for us here. Yeah. What you're saying then is the Genesis account of day one, day two, day three, day four, all the way through seven, is actually a, a different realm, different universe, different whatever it may be, and so it's actually not addressing the specific earth and universe that we're in right now. That's kind of what I was... So Eden existed over there. He created Eden in, se- in six days. Mm-hmm. This world he created in 13.7 billion years, and he kind of tossed us here. Is that, is that what you're getting yeah, at? That's kind of what I'm getting at, or, or uh, suggesting. That's what I'm getting at. I would, think, I would think people on my side of the spectrum, the position I'm embodying, would say that's not exegetically convincing. Yeah, it seems like it's a temporal, Genesis 3, this... This, this happened, and now this, and the same thing that used to be this. Does that make sense? And my um, side as well. I don't think that that is something that we could argue from the text. Furthermore, you have specific rivers that are denoted and in that count. Yeah, the yeah, text is surprisingly the, historical in character. Tigers and Euphrates, at least, Jeff. I'm just willing to see how you would respond. Anybody else have questions? Uh... Both of your views or, or interpretations about Genesis one are dependent on a interpretation or like an understanding of temple versus or not versus, but an understanding of a, a seven day period. Um, and so I would be I'd be curious how y'all would respond to like which revelation came first. In that if you have if, if that is how you view the world as a seven-day kind of work week or a temple view, and then you get this revelation about how creation is done, then that would heavily influence how you understand what God has revealed to you, which is perfectly fine for yours, but for yours, then it's you understand it as a literal six-day period because that's how you understand the world. I don't know how to follow that. I'm struggling with the question. As Are you well. meaning scientifically? Okay. Like, <laughs> evolution has proved 100% true. What does he do? No, no, no. Oh. Not at all. Wow. Uh, all right. Okay. So, um, we hold the Genesis 1 as a revelation from God. Yes? No. Yes. yes. Absolutely. Great. <laughs> yes. Okay. So, the, that revelation from God probably didn't happen at all the other times that God revealed things. Okay specifically about the temple. So how the tem- temple should be, how we should understand a work week. Was not... I, I will think of a better way to phrase this question. <laughs> I thought it was brilliant. Thank you, Jim. All right, hang on. I, let me see. Let me try number two. If God reveals again, and it's a different revelation? Nope. Man, okay, I got nothing. You need to work on the whole... I don't understand the difference between revelations. Because yeah. the temple revelation is not different from my revelation. It's the same text at the same right. time. Right. Okay. So it's interpretation, not revelation. Okay, so at some point God revealed how the temple should be. Right. Yes? Yes. Like the, the temple like in Jerusalem? The, the yes. formation. Okay. Yeah, the, the, the formation and that they, on the Sabbath they should rest. Yes. yes. He told them that. Yes. Okay. Yes. Now, if that happened before he okay. revealed creation to the group Israel, mm-hmm. that makes sense. Okay. Okay. okay, then it would impact how they understood the interpretation of creation. 
Okay. So are you asking okay. the question of which came first, the here's how you build the temple, or okay. here's the creation? No, so Sabbath. I, I am asking that because mm-hmm. it jives with hers, her yeah, view that would, of creation. That would confirm but for my him, for, or for the, the literal day, mm-hmm. if that's the case, then how he understands what God revealed is influenced by a previous revelation and may not actually be literal. I thought okay. I would you to that last part. I did too. Okay, forget the last part. Go. Are you saying? Are you saying the question of dating, which came first, the Sabbath commandment, which seems to interpret Genesis one and six day Greek, or the temple interpretation, yes. the temple command? Yes. Uh, yeah, I think it's a hard question to answer. I'm not 100 percent sure I, I get what the implications would be either way. Uh, I, like I think even if the temple is the first one, the temple works on the seven days. Yes. I mean, it's a day that they did this in the temple, and the day they did that, and then the last day that God came and rested in the temple. Mm-hmm. Um, the dating is an interesting question. A lot of people, I think a lot of actual scholars would think the Genesis story comes about in the exile, in the Babylonian exile, uh, which what Peter Ains will do a lot with is how do you read the Genesis story thinking through the historical context of what the Israelites were going through at the time that they mm-hmm. kind of put out at least published this text, probably an oral story that existed for a long time beforehand. Right. So influence and dating I think is an important question. I think it's probably an even much more difficult question than anything we've talked that about. language and culture, absolutely. Okay. You said follow the money yeah. as kind of like a skeptical view of what does that mean? Uh, the question of why. Why would we change something? Mm-hmm. Why would something new appear? Was there actually new evidence? Uh, so if you've always thought A, um, are you now thinking B because of a situation you got in, or are you thinking B because new evidence came to light? Um, so I, I do this a lot with end times theories. Um, the kind of popular end time theory in America is uh, kind of left behind the kind of rapture thing. Well, it's really new, and there was actually no new evidence ever given for it. Um, we had the same exact text and evidence in front of us. The only thing that changed was kind of a historical situation. Um, and so I look at that and go, that's not a very good motive for interpretation, and particularly for changing a very established interpretation. Um, you're not actually doing something because of the evidence. You're trying to make the evidence fit something else. Mm-hmm. Um, so the follow the money is... It's a, it's a figure of money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a motive other than mm-hmm. yeah. what the truth is. The question of... I don't, I don't... The question would be, if the science thing never happened, would we be here? Would we be having this discussion about Genesis? My answer to that is yes, by the way. And see, so my response to that, that was a good answer. We do have new ancient Near Eastern texts, and people who have done a significant amount of work on it are now being able to publish their results, those kind of things. I actually don't think if you look really closely, particularly at some of the responses to the work she's referenced by Walton and others, um, there are significant differences in the text, both theologically and materially, with the way the world's organized and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, that, is true. that is true. Which I think might make the claim that the similarity between them and the, the new evidence that makes us rethink entirely what Genesis means might be weaker than it sounds originally. Mm-hmm. Um, I disagree with that. In that you have, so the diversity of the four Gospels, right? And so some of them have different accounts, but they're all cropping up in these different places. And the church knew that, and the church canonized all four, knowing that they were a bit different, because it communicated the fact that there's this truth that everybody was experiencing here, and so we want to incorporate all four. So I don't think that diversity weakens the argument. I do think that it makes, some of my claims might be proven later to be false, Right, um, so some ancient people thought that the mountains held up the sky, 
Other people thought it was chains, okay? Um, but something that comes across every creation narrative is this emphasis on temple. Um, and so that's the work that's really been redone, and it's also affected the Tower of Babel story as well. They weren't trying to go up to God. They were trying to build a ziggurat so that he could come down. Um, so a lot of that stuff has really, and I think to our detriment, the church has not, obviously because it's, it is so new, we've just, I mean, they're reading through so much information, and you have to learn all these ancient Semitic languages. So um, I guess what I would wonder is, and I agree with that, yeah. but if, if the temple stuff and then the comparisons and, and discoveries of the ancient Irish document, documents, if that undermines a material ontology... Or if that just sheds a new light theologically. You mean functional ontology? Yeah. No, that undermines reading it materially. Okay. Like, what about that mm -hmm. would mean we have to go back to the drawing board and get rid of that and only go functional? I think what I was... The temple thing fits in pretty nicely with mine, just as, as neatly, with those with the addition of that ancient and Eastern kind of perspective. Right. But I think that if you're looking at material, then it's just a common sense plane. He's just creating the material. What you get with the function, um, I think, makes more sense with the ancient people. So, is it a false dichotomy? I don't think so. But that's a valid question. I just think. Wait, I saw hands. Sorry. No. We're just going back and forth. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, how can you reconcile uh, the figures? And I'm thinking, of, for example, the wives of Cain and Abel. Enoch runs off and founds a city full of people that apparently are just there. How do you yeah. how do you reconcile that with your interpretations? That there seems to be uh, more out there than what's clearly described in the in, in, in the text. This is probably. I think that's more of an issue for Mike. It is. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Cain goes out right, and he finds a city. Like mm -hmm. you're yeah. only supposed to be person number. Three. <laughs> and he finds a city. I believe the traditional interpretation, the traditional kind of apologetic to that would be Adam's actually around for just under a thousand years. Um, At that point. And that the time it, the, the idea would be there's lots happening that aren't in the text. Um, and, there are, and Cain is not, Cain might be number three chronologically, right? But he's not number three out of three in the world. Um, Again, I mean, it's kind of weird for us to think about, uh, and it might not seem like this makes the most sense in the world to us, uh, who can't understand how something could be civilized, right? A population could arise in a shorter amount of time, those kind of things. Um, I think the response to that, I will grant that there, there are some sticky things there, um, and I don't have the perfect answer to that at all. I feel like the response would be something in the effect of uh, things were happening that weren't on the text, and there might be more time than we always allow. Uh, for kids to pop up and things to be built, and I would, kind of, and in I response, I'm going to tack on a little bit with oh, that. Just kind of what I've heard from that camp a lot of times would be this: if you calculate out if Adam and Eve are living 950 years, and say the childbearing years are going to include several hundred of those, and their kids would be several hundred of those post age 15 or whatnot. By the time Adam and Eve are 950 years old, you could actually have a population of a million people on Earth. So that that would be. Civilization in a city. 
be fruitful, multiply people. This is in the text. And again, that's just that was the, the assumptions that I had seen on that would be based upon having a child every two years, which in an ancient context is not a problem. Twins, triplets. I will. That was just an extension on what what he was saying. I I hear that, but in the text, Seth is after. Cain and Abel, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, Adam has him at 130 years, so it's not like it was year 500, right? When he had Cain and Cain, that whole thing went down and he went to a city. So he's only got, you know, 100 years. Civilizations aren't... I would come back to you. I know it sounds like a cop-out at times, but I feel like it's a lesser cop-out at times <laughs> than re- reimagining the entire interpretation. Yeah. But for instance, with a solar thing on day four, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds kind of like a cop-out. There are other non-solar ways of doing it. But perhaps it's much less of a risk to take, to say God can do things that weren't in the text and that seem un- unordinary to us, then to go back and start from scratch. Who, who knows, right, what mm-hmm. happened? Maybe God actually creates other people somewhere after this occurs, those kind of things. Um, we're not told this is exactly everything that God did and everything that happened on the earth from Genesis 1, 1 and on. Um, so again, maybe lesser cop-outs could be found. Mm-hmm. And again, I would respond by saying we're not finding this from scratch. We have ancient documents that that clarify that people thought this way about light symbolizing time, things like that. You object to the word scratch. Yes. I just thought it was funny that he's taking a literal view but using a great metaphor to explain his literal view. Mm-hmm. Oh, money. <laughs> Go ahead, Ridge. I, Zach, I, you're next. Something was laid out there, and, and it has to do with, like, it's just a theory, and the theory next age may change. And I'd just like to point out that most of the time, the scientific community discards the, the theories that are not useful, and they keep and promote the ones that are added on to and supported by the evidence. And so it's, it's not like, it's just a theory. And my favorite example is there's a theory of the flat earth, and there's a theory of a spherical earth, and both are wrong, but one is useful. And, and I think that's the way, you know, in terms of evolution, um, I, I would say it's a, it's a miscalculation to say that people are, are throwing it away. I would say it's more proper that they're, they're arguing the finer points of actually how did it happen, how fast, what are the mechanisms, and that sort of thing. It may be thrown out, but it's going to take a, a huge brick to dislodge that at this point. So I just, I just kind of wanted to... I agree with that. Just the theory is, and I, I and do we think that's a. from the scientific community over here because we are not. <laughs> Rich is a geologist, so and I, from what I hear, a very good one is that at that. Uh, so if he, for science type stuff, he would be, I think, a good resource. Yeah. And I, I say I agree with that. I think it's a good critique as well for people who come from my camp who do throw out like it's a theory, not a fact. Yeah. When and scientifically, right, a theory, scientific theory, is actually higher than a fact. <laughs> it's a whole bunch of facts together that make up a working understanding of the world that's useful, those kind of things. Mm-hmm. I don't think, and when I made the comment, I'm not suggesting we're going to go backwards to right, yeah. like a 24-hour younger, I don't think, I don't think scientific community is ever going to go to that. Um, but there might be significant changes in the, the Darwinian evolutionism that would mean yeah. Christians shouldn't marry themselves to this. And just to say, to tack on top of that, I think there are some ethical problems with evolution as well, like kind of the myth of progress, right? Like, Things are getting better and better and better and better. So I think, you know, no scientific theory is going to be devoid of of a church's, you know, critique of it. Actually, to... evolution. Sorry, oh no! Actually, continue. evolution does not claim 
the organisms continue to get better and better and better. Oh. Just that they adapt corrected. to stimulus. So okay. whatever so the mutation. stimulus happens to be. And going with maybe clarifying a little different direction of what she yes. was saying, the ethics of survival of the fittest, the right. society should function right. along the lines of survival of the fittest. That would be an ethical question that you would probably want to throw out as a right. Christian. Not in a, well, it's clearly wrong scientifically, mm -hmm. but in a, well, that's great, but let's not do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and to go along that, I think one of the great ironies is that a lot of conservative Christians who are very anti-evolution are very for um, a survival of the fittest mentality towards economics, like capitalism and things like that. So it's like, well... Okay, so now we've entered into the political discussion. <laughs> sorry, sorry, it's okay, I'm a communist, so that is <laughs> All right, Zach, you had a question. Okay. Okay. Uh, Chris, you're right. Mike. <laughs> yes. Michelle, and it's kind of her last rebuttal, said, what do you do with chapter two? So what do you do with chapter two? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it'll be a much longer discussion. Uh, again, I think there are fairly common, straight, uh, common sense, straightforward ways of getting out of. It's not as different as people sometimes assume. Right. Um, even if it was that different, there are lots of things you could do with understanding it as different, other than reinterpreting just as one. Um, there are interpretive issues with translation in Genesis 2. Um, so sometimes we've interpreted some words that make it seem in English like there's much bigger of a conflict than there might be in the original text. Um, so I think it's a much extended discussion. It's one I'm not prepared to have. Um, yeah. But I do think there are, are, from my perspective side, fairly straightforward ways out of it. Chris? Okay, this is strictly hypothetical for... Mike, or maybe for Rich. But <laughs> say you have a nine-and-a-half-year-old son mm -hmm. who comes to you, who's read Genesis 1, and says, yeah, this is very scientific, I know we're not talking about it, says, where are the dinosaurs? What would you say? What would you say to your nine-and-a-half-year-old son? Sam actually <laughs> wanted to present a third position. Yes. Sam, she wanted to present like the position. third position. What's the title? Dinosaurs. Fairy tale of the angry liberal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it almost made the cut for the third version. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite uh, museum in the world is is in Texas, and it's next to uh, oh, a park that has dinosaur footprints. And I mean, what's the what Occam razor? What's is that? What's that? The one that yeah. choose the simplest explanation? Yeah, Occam. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they look like dinosaur footprints. You know, they they act like it. They quack like it. Um, but there's a museum across the very nearby that is a creationist museum <laughs> that that you can go to to kind of set you straight about really what the dinosaur is all about, and um, it's it's more of a literal point. poetic. They're less than six thousand years old. And, you know, I don't know what I mean. Uh, but it's a legitimate question. I would like to yeah. the legitimate answer would be <laughs> dinosaurs and humans coexisted. Uh, there are primordial big beings. They're never called dinosaurs in the Old Testament scriptures, um, but that fit the bill, would fit the bill. Um, so not in the Genesis text. It would fall under the, neither are buffaloes and zebras and giraffes and things like that. Um, but perhaps large, scary, monsterish creatures seemingly existing at the same time as humans in the Old Testament text that you could find. The scientific problem would be fossil records and that kind of stuff, dating. Um, this camp would try to poke holes in the efforts of those dating, and then if they couldn't poke the holes, they would say the flood has got to play a role in how we interpret these things. The flood is kind of the answer to everything on your side of the camp. I feel like. 
Well, it was a big deal. Everyone died. Just <laughs> <laughs> saying, like the firmament, you know, no longer being there. But um, all right, let's. Did that answer your question? I mean, Jake. Uh, this is a question for Mike. Um, I thought you were going to get all the questions. No, 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 you're up. I was telling Zachy's after you. Oh, okay. Uh, Mike, this is a question for you. Uh, some of your arguments seem to be based off of the authority of the early Christian fathers and a, a lack of need to stray from, from established things. Would that imply that there is no need for the Holy Spirit to continue to reveal new things? Because, I mean, at this point, just about every verse of every translation has been done to death. Uh, so, I mean, is there nothing new to be revealed? My answer to that would always be no. Uh, I would actually say, interestingly enough, so this might surprise you, it might not, I probably wouldn't consider myself the most ardent of the professor of this position. But at researching to present it, uh, and you, y'all might be able to correct me on this, I actually think the creation interpretation is one of the most uniform in the church. So Christians have differed in their interpretation of atonement like a thousand times more than I have in creation um, in terms of like just typically what everyone has always agreed on and again not because of lack of disagreement or options to go toward but close readings of the text um, so I would say and I think everyone on here would say because they sense the trap right that no the Holy Spirit still speaks and there are ways and reasons to stray reformation that kind of stuff but in this particular sense they would cite sources for why it's not appropriate um, and, and then look at yeah I mean you have the authority argument, but the authority argument is maybe the strongest with creation than it's ever been with anything. So if ever there's an authority yeah. argument, it's here with creation. Um, I mean, I can't. I honestly can't think of another issue that had that much uniform agreement. Yeah. Trinity, obviously, uh, like, obviously, the big ones would be you know Trinity, deity, humanity, Christ, etc. The question, obviously, that's left unanswered at that point is, well, why? It could be that it just never was seen as a big deal or maybe it just was that uniform that's the answer that I've never actually seen is mm-hmm. was it just simply is everyone saying no that's absolutely the way it is or no one just bothered to ask the question there wasn't another option. an excellent point yeah. it, because with Trinity right the reason we have such detailed wording about the Trinity is because we had some serious heresies going on in the early church so they got together and said we have to hammer this out we have to come up with language biblical and not biblical languages because they were really good at twisting it to make them say whatever they wanted to be able to establish what's in bounds and out of bounds for Trinity. And creation may have just been something that nothing heretical came up. I think that's an interesting interesting point. I do think, but, I would yeah. say it's wrong in the fact that there were other options. Certain Christians, even big ones, Augustine, for instance, claimed that all Christians have it at once. Uh, and the days are ways of us understanding it. God on time, those kind of things. This is a rejected opinion, though, by people. Um, He's probably the most famous of the people who would stray off the uniform path here. Well, Thomas Aquinas also discovered that he believed in a, a universe that has always existed. In other words, as long as there is a time. In my research today, Aquinas only admitted that it was a possibility. He mm-hmm. never said this is he, exactly what he, he believed. He followed Aristotle, and that is what Aristotle said. In fact, his five ways, his first three ways, only make sense with an infinitely old universe. Regardless, I would say this. Calvin, actually, interestingly enough, uh, comes up with a framework view 400 years ago and rejects it. Uh, he actually, in his commentary, say what? You mean that guy you challenged on the pulpit? But uh, the guy who I also said was very good at getting getting text right. Uh, Sorry. So he has actually an extended commentary in Genesis or extended passage where he talks about could this just be 
a literary way of talking about the organization and the function and the fulfillment of the roles of various parts of creation. He says, no, it's also temporal and historical. Um, so, and it's actually, I mean, reading it was shocking. I don't know if you've read it. But Calvin lays out Walden's argument and other framework guys pretty detailed, 400 years before it got popular in the academia. And it's just not very impressed with it. Um, and kind of walks away from it to the uniform. So mm-hmm. at least very important people on pen and paper played with ideas similar to what people are doing now um, and walked away from it. Right, but especially with the performer, uh, reformers, we had new perspective on Paul, right? So all sorts of stuff were coming up about Paul and what he thought about, thought about in terms of justification and things like that, and we're rejecting the reformers' view and going back earlier. So I've... I view this in a similar way, like we're going earlier, because we now have ancient Near Eastern documents, and we need to go with what they say, to an extent, or we need to give them weight. Sorry. Is that good? Sir? Yes. Um, I think that one of the biggest hesitancies about adopting your view, uh, as opposed to Mike, which does have thousands of years of history behind it. Uh, is that it can, in fact, present a material creation that doesn't have God at the center. And that that is not, that is not a requirement. So where does this stuff come from? The, you, don't, you don't answer the question, mm-hmm. uh, which is one of the big kind of bonuses of having a creation story. Where does stuff come from? Right. Um, no, that's a good question. I didn't really address it. What I should have said earlier is that the Israelites, without a doubt, believe that God created the material. But again, when they are talking about a creation story, creation for them happens not when he creates material, which is very foreign to you and I, because that's how we think. But it's when he makes that material functional, when he gives that material use and purpose. So that's the story they tell, because that's the creation story. So and that's he what created it, the material earlier? Right. So they would assume they would assume that God created the material, but that's not the exciting Sorry. story. The exciting story is no one else God is saying God didn't create the material. Right. In other words, if you have like a big thing of clay and someone's going to make you know a pot, you say, "Wow!" And then he made clay. Like, I, I don't care. Of course, he made clay. I want to talk about the pot. Right. So that would be their ruling kind of question. Where our ruling question is, where where was the step? When did you make the stuff? A lot of stuff has actually been done outside of even the discussion on the, the gap between Genesis 1 1 and Genesis 1 2, or the gap between Genesis 1 2 and Genesis 1 3. So a lot of people put like Satan's rebellion between 1 and 2. So God created a perfect world, it got screwed up, and that's how you get Genesis 2 1 2, where everything's dark and or- disorderly and chaotic and those kind of things. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are there are lots of interesting and sometimes really weird stuff that's been done yeah. with God with creates everything no is that a summary of week one Genesis 1-1 which is how some people read it or is that an actual event right and then the next thing you see on the stage of history is just this nasty chaos that mm-hmm. isn't fitting for God and isn't supposed to be there and isn't going to be there and then God takes that and starts putting things together is he rebuilding at that point mm-hmm. or did he like throw all the materials down on the floor and then start to assemble mm-hmm. into what we get um and I don't know if you came up with any research on this, I'd be curious, but in most of my language studies, people consider Genesis 1, verse 1, the title, the title of the chapter. 
in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then you tell the story. So I don't know if anyone... Because that's... I mean... I don't, I don't know. I, I will say I came across research that said the pluperfect uh, is unique in Genesis 1 to 1 as the verb mm-hmm. and typically refers to a previous event. So it's the background event for the story. Okay. Um, I will say, I, 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 all I'd say, I don't know how I would evaluate that, that argument. In the past, I've seen Genesis yeah. 1 to 1 as the summary statement. Um, so I'll say there's, there's mm-hmm. people out there who say that. Right. I don't want to support one either way. I, I haven't looked at it enough to evaluate. Mm-hmm. Our language people are not here. Jimmy and Jessica. Yes. Yeah. You contrast uh, the creation story maybe compared to some of the others that you referenced. In Genesis, it seems to be more scientifically oriented than any of the others I'm familiar with. They're normally stories about people and they interact and elephants come in and whatever happens in between what you refer mm-hmm. to. So is it, this is more scientifically aligned, so it's easier to say, okay, that's a scientific view. What's your. Yeah, I would say so. Uh, and I think that's one of the points of the differences between the, 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 mm-hmm. the different epics and the different tales. Um, and surprisingly enough, I think even with evolutionary science, the order of the days is remarkably intact with kind of how things come about and those kind of things. Um, so I would say so. Uh, and I think you find significant material ontological differences between other creation texts. So differences in what the stuff is and how the stuff came to be. And to regard, that's actually one of the things that changes. That's one of the things God reveals to the Israelites as different from other revelations. It's not just the function and not just who God is and how he's sovereign and doesn't fight with other gods and those kind of things, which are big differences. I mean, there are huge differences in the text, and you don't want to overplay those. And we get to appreciate those more the more we can read these other texts. So, I mean, the difference between a world that God created out of peace and the difference of a world that God created out of a big war with other gods and on carcasses and word ponds and those kind of things right. is remarkable. Um, but there are remarkable differences in the things that were created and how they were created and at times seemingly a, a very obviously pre-modern but scientific physical viewpoint. Yeah, amazing alignment with the science. I mean, they had no reference uh, to that. Yeah. I would say maybe to as a response to that, the reason that it is so different um, has to do with the material, but also has to do, again, with its function and purpose. So the stars and things like that, they would have been seen by other ancient Near Eastern people as gods. Um, so when he is assigning these objects and he's telling them where to go, the difference there is one of monotheism. So it's, again, not necessarily about the material, but about the theological, like, is one god, there's not a war, um, but it is still remarkable in its temple focus, at least from the, the ancient Near Eastern. I don't know about um, uh, like other religions per se, like the Hindu creation story and things like that, but as far as like the Canaanite people, the Ugaritic, the Babylonian, um, all of those have a lot of similar elements. But the key difference is it's one God who does create in an orderly way. This is a stable world. Good question. Yeah. Did you say that the fall is a metaphorical event or like a literal occurrence? Mm-hmm. Oh. Okay, before you do that, can you describe what you mean by a literal occurrence? Like, did was the serpent actually there? Did they actually? So there was a tree, and they physically ate the yeah. tree. Oh, or gotcha. because it seems like if you follow in Michelle's camp, then 
death was an instrument of creation, kind of, because it existed mm -hmm. before. And mm -hmm. I don't know, because obviously it seems like God doesn't like death in his creation toward the end because he removes it, but I'm just wondering how you rectify that. Okay, I'm assuming that's addressed to me, or if you want to. You, you can address that one first, because I think that is a lingering question. That is a lingering question. Um, and I wouldn't say that death is an instrument, um, but I think that death is, in a sense, part of the natural order, um, but similar in the way that Satan was not always this evil, domineering, now-attacking-person-thing whether he was a fallen angel or whatever his fall consisted of. Um, I think there is a progression, and that progression started because of sin, because of the fall. Um, and so when man and woman are exiled, that creates um, a lack of protection that they had before, namely from their communication, their relationship with God, the tree of life that sustains them. Um, and so death then becomes um, this opposing force. This is, my mind works and I connect everything, so I'm sorry. But Mysterious ways, just like God. But this, this ultimately <laughs> comes back to where does evil come from? To me, that's, that's the big question. Um, and I really wish scripture gave the answer to that one. But, you know, like, if there's this serpent who's, you know, the adversary, like, what's his story? What is this thing? Chaos invades. Serpent was seen as a chaos monster. It was seen as evil. Um, so even if we go with my view, the serpent is still a symbol for evil, and that evil has invaded. We don't know why. We don't know if God allowed it. But it invades. This is one of the interesting things thing about framework view, mm -hmm. is that it takes a remarkably literal, common sense approach to most of the things. Mm. And that I think most framework people think historical Adam and Eve, and whatever sense you think of it, mm. and whether you think an actual snake was slithering along, but an actual time event where right. human beings rebelled, mm -hmm. and then the world changed where the world wasn't one way, now it's a certain way, those yeah. kind of things. Um, mm -hmm. And then Mike Amber say it's a remarkable picking and choosing of what you get to do or not or to do. Or the slippery slope. Yeah, uh, but mm -hmm. so I, I think yeah. I mean, even even on that camp, there's a, a certain point where there's a fall. Mm -hmm. Whether death was there or not, they would at least say death changed yes. the nature of death. The function of death is different. So um, your camp would say then that death pre-existed the fall, mm -hmm. but death now became. Was it that death itself takes on a malevolent sort of existence, or that the perspective of the people on death? I think it would be that death itself does. At least I think Walton would say that death now became the dominating force. And but if everything died before, then how is that not a dominating force? Because we had protection in a relationship with God. We were serving our purpose and function. And once that ceases, once that stops... So the whole sin leading to death, it's, you know, a, a cup that no longer can be used. It's broken. I think that's what they No, say. I understand what you're saying. Yeah. Yes. Does that make sense? Oh, no. I'm sorry. Last one, I promise. Okay. Uh, as Christians, should we give more weight to the creation story that's described in John 1 
uh, and see Genesis as like kind of a corollary or secondary creation, uh, or is it vitally important to what we do? Sounds like it's up your alley. Go for it. Uh, I think my position <laughs> would say the creation story is much more specific in Genesis and historically. Um, the John one is much more ambiguous and overarching. Uh, I would say from just meeting at night, that would be very interesting for me to think of a kind of Christocentric mm-hmm. New Covenant reading of the creation account and where I might place the emphasis and the worries and things like that. And that's kind of the dominating thing for the Gospel of John as well, is creation, new creation. So it's interesting. Do you want any questions or anything you want to talk about that who hasn't talked or hasn't spoken? And if y'all like want to leave it feel bad, we know it's like nine seventeen. Yeah. So I was about to shut it down. Oh, okay. Sure. We won't be offended. <laughs> any last questions? I have a word of praise, and that is this discussion could have easily have been kind of like this headbutting science versus. Uh, literal interpretation. It wasn't that at all. It wasn't what I was expecting. It was much, much better. And kudos to everybody involved. Except I have to go to work with all those headbutt people tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, any warm-up rounds that people want to have sometime? <laughs> One of the things that, we, and we discussed this beforehand when we were talking about the topics, we found that when the question is one of science, Christians saying, well, no, wait, this happened or this didn't happen because science says this. No, science says that. And you get into the scientific arguments or discussions, we don't really find that to be a terribly fruitful thing because the real question has everything to do with, as Christians, what does Scripture say? What has God revealed? Um, and obviously there is this tension of the created order, which is a general revelation of God, and then you have the specific creation, you know, you have the, the Bible, you have the Holy Spirit, you have specifically what God has revealed to us, and these two need to be in harmony, as Michelle was alluding to earlier. Um, really what it comes down to is science does its thing, and they're already having these fights. They're having these fights. They have their assumptions. They decide this, that, and the other, and they turn this over, and they decide this, that, and the other, and they re- you know review this and whatever else. But as Christians, we probably should be talking about the framework for how do we view things in general, like things like this and, and so forth, that really doesn't open us up to a battle with science over this or that or whatever else. It really keeps us with a framework that is respectable, that, you know what, we can look at whatever science is doing, and we can say, see God, see what God's doing here? You see what God's doing here? It, it's almost like we need to have a framework that kind of transcends this whole battle, if you will. Yeah. Now, if that means that we need to sit down and say, Look, six, ten thousand years, I'm sorry. I mean, you guys can have your scientific battles and whatnot, but Scripture does not allow us to deviate from that. Then you know what? Then that's what we need to have. If it actually is a framework view, well, then the Bible's not addressing the science of it. If, if science says it's evolution, fine, whatever, it's evolution. Here's how God's working through that. And, and, we, and we would take it with a theistic evolutionary perspective. And God is, like, literally concerned about the minutia. It's not random mutations. It is theologically guided mutations for his purposes. In which case, you know, in, in this perspective, 
they say if it's evolution, then then God's just as much as involved in the evolutionary process. You're not questioning someone's Christianity one way or the other. And so that's why we that's why we're most interested in the framework question of how does the Christian need to view it regardless of what science says. I, I think you're quite right. The one comment I have is I don't talk to very many scientists. And so I find that actually, uh, the, you're with me, right? So the, it's the media reports it in flash and it's the one sentence. And I actually think when you actually explore the science, you have to actually have quite a bit of faith to believe that that is how it comes out when you ask. Because they don't have all the facts. Well, obviously, as Christians, we would sit there and say, oh, that's wonderful, thank you for telling us how God does what he does. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> that's, that's an important point, though, I think, because I think we sometimes, when we get into these topics and discussions, we lose sight of the fact that science is really ultimately focused on how. Theology, however, is focused on who and why. Yeah. And creation, unfortunately, is one of those topics where we each kind of want to lean into the other guy's Mm. arena mm. I, I think a lot of times too like any arguments that I've gotten into with you know friends who bought a book and read that one book and then decided <laughs> that everyone was an idiot because they didn't believe what that book said or you know or read that one sentence yeah and, or read the back of the book you know um, <laughs> there was <laughs> you know there was never from the moment that they had that thought and made that decision there was never a moment for them to consider anything else than what they've decided to believe and so, um, you know, and I have quite a few friends that are very strongly agnostic or very strongly believe this or that. And I think the way that I kind of just look at it is like, man, I hope at the end of our friendship, you know, um, if, you know, I haven't converted them by the grace of God, you know, that they'll be able to say, man, she has some stupid views, but she sure does love me. And she sure does love everyone around her. And so that's like my hope because I'm like, there's no, there's, if, if they're not open to hearing what I have to say, which I feel like is most of the time, then that's the one thing that can like over go over it and so it's like I just don't even concern myself with trying to apologize for something that they're just not going to accept it's one of the things to. I harp on my students about I say until you can argue the opposite position better than the opposition can argue that then your opinion, your opinion is really not worth having mm-hmm. and I want to apologize for my whole camp I think there's a large amount of just reactionary nature to what Christians mm-hmm. do sometimes particularly in public um, so scientific ignorance uh, and framing the discussion in a way that's not helpful science versus faith type stuff yeah. well you set yourself up to lose either way uh, you alienate yourself whether you're right or you're wrong right. uh, I would say trying to do a 24 hour review much more I think humble than what you'd see in a, like a flashline news mm-hmm. I would say if you're going to do this do it in a way that you can't repeat the Galileo Incident. Yes. Even if you're right, that you haven't, I mean, you've handled this with the right grace and the right amount of humility and those kind of things to where yeah. that's just not an option. You can't go down in history looking like that. Um, yeah. I have to say, one of the most fruitful conversations I've ever had with my father, who was staunchly atheist, um, you know, he was clearly yada 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 to me, and I just sat down with him and I said, Well, Dad, you know, I really love you. And it's really going to hurt when I never get to see you again and you're in hell. And for the longest time, he never spoke to me. But to be, to be so sincere in my love for him, I think, changed things. Um, and as times I wasn't, you're going to hell. It was like, it's really, I mean, my heart will break when he dies. Um, 
much more so than you know anyone that I know that's a Christian. Um, and so to go at it with such a sincerity and a um, love for people, I think it changes. Does anybody have any last comments or thoughts? I just think either view commandments are the same, like for all the elephant in the room stuff. Like the commandments are always the same, regardless of what you believe happened before they were made or about the God who made them. And we'll throw a plug in before we end, which is next week we heat up with gender roles, okay? So, uh, um, next week. Who's uh, speaking? Michelle will be presenting the complementarian view. Typical. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so women should not serve a ministry, should be subordinate at home, uh, those kind of things. She's also nice. coupling this with her resignation from the church. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then Jessica Parks, our resident Christian feminist, will be supporting the egalitarian view, which is oh, that Christians yeah. are able to serve in whatever capacity in the ministry and then have some sort of equal footing at home. Uh, I will be moderating and taking Chris's place. It'll be a very interesting, fruitful time. Uh, so yeah. come, bring your friends, bring your family. <laughs> same time, same place, next Monday, 730. All right. Thank you all for coming. Pastor, you want to close? Oh, yeah, let's pray. Oh, darn. <laughs> Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you just for the opportunity to come and have uh, loving and respectful dialogue uh, we praise you that there are not always places where we can do this and places where Christians are able to do this. Uh, and we ask that you would continue to guide us in loving and respectful engagement, even people whom we disagree with on things. Um, we pray for your revelation, for your increasing uh, filling of the Spirit, Father, as we interpret text, as we deal with science, as we deal with the outside world. Uh, we pray foremost that you would continually shape us into Christ, that we would look more and more like him talk like him, read the scriptures like him, relate to other people like him, um, and that we would just live out the life of the kingdom and enjoy the peace that you have bought for us and have called us into. We love you. Uh, we thank you for the minds that you've given us, uh, for the world that you've created for us to play in and to learn about and to debate about, um, and for the blessings that you've poured out on us. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen.